everyone. You're listening to The Katie Halper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Halper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper show. Here's the deal. We got a great show for you today. We got amazing guests, and we're going to get into that and who they are very shortly. Going to keep you in suspense for a little bit. But welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Like, subscribe, join the Patreon, join the show as members. But I just wanted to update people. You probably know this. On Monday, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, reduced the number of days that infected patients should remain isolated to five days from 10 Anyone leaving isolation must be free of symptoms and should wear a mask when near others for an additional five days. Lo and behold, guys, this coincides perfectly with a request made by the CEO of Delta Airlines, who wrote a letter to the CDC saying, with the rapid spread of the Omicron variant, the 10-day isolation for those who are fully vaccinated may significantly impact our workforce and operations. Similar to healthcare, police, fire, and public transportation workforces, the Omicron surge may exacerbate shortages and create significant disruptions. So we're going to talk about this decision, what motivated it, what these disruptions mean, what kind of fallout there'll be from the shortened isolation periods, and also kind of discuss global health, public health in a larger context, and how we can balance that with the needs and demands of capitalism. And maybe we can't. We're going to have to sit tight and figure that one out. We're going to figure all of that out on the show. And helping us do that are none other than our two esteemed guests, Dr. Oni Blackstock, a primary care and HIV physician, founder and executive director of Health Justice and former assistant commissioner at the New York City Health Department, and Justin Feldman, an epidemiologist and research fellow at the Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, who's written at JAMA and all the AMAs and Jacobin. So without further ado, let's bring on our two doctors, doctors in different ways, but both doctors nonetheless. Hello, welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Of course. I have a lot of questions for you guys in terms of public health more generally, but I thought we could start with the news of the day. And I want to know your guys' responses to these new guidelines, what your thoughts on them are. Either of you can start. Go for it. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was, I think, probably shocked like um, many other folks to hear of, of this change um, in the um, in the guidance with respect to isolation, duration, and quarantine. I think there are a lot of aspects of it that are incre- incredibly questionable and do not appear to be um, based in um, science. You know, a lot of it is based on what we know about Delta. We're learning a lot about um, Omicron. We don't really have a grasp on, you know, the duration of infectiousness, the fact that there was no um, testing requirement that was part of the guidance um, was problematic. Also, this um, the, the recommendation around wearing a mask for the last five days. I mean, we know that there's been, you know, 
extreme anti-mask sentiment. I mean, many people don't know how to wear their masks properly. So really concerns about whether people can adhere to this. And, you know, all the while we're going through this uh, Delta plus Omicron surge, um, I think people are, are fatigued, people are exhausted, people are trying to like stay alive and protect themselves. And then to have this guidance come out that does not appear to be based in science, um, that appears to be driven purely by um, business interests, is very um, disheartening and I think discouraging for many. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say this entire pandemic in the US, workers have been unprotected for the most part by US policy. Under the Trump administration, there was no OSHA regulation protecting workers for COVID. In the Biden administration, there was an attempt by OSHA to issue a pretty comprehensive regulation that would cover most workers in the US. It would have included, among other things, paid time off when you are infected or exposed. Uh, for businesses ten, with 10 or more workers, uh, it disappeared, was killed by the White House after lobbying by business interests, uh, disappeared in May. There was almost no media reporting on it. Um, fast forward to today, and we're at this point where there's no, really no laws uh, in most states protecting workers. So this is just guidance that in many cases, businesses voluntarily follow. And they're going to, if, they're, if they are following it, they're going to be providing a less protective uh, policy that's going to leave, in many cases, workers in the workplace while contagious with a highly contagious variant, and that's going to infect their coworkers. Right. And just to add, like, there's just so much that could be done. Um, I mean, right now, society is like wide open. I think, as Justin was saying, again, very little protections um, for workers, but just little, very little protections for like the general public. I'm here in New York City. Uh, we have Broadway shows going on. New Year's Eve and Times Square is still planned, yet they've decided to, you know, change this guidance when there are many other mitigation measures that could be taken to protect workers and the public in general. Yeah, and I think that this coincides so interestingly with Biden's statement to governors that there's no federal solution to COVID. So we have Biden saying that, and then we have the CDC making a decision that that even they seem to be admitting is not entirely science-based. I mean, to be fair, they're admitting that this is about, they have various euphemisms for it, disruption. They want to do as much as people can tolerate, they said. I actually have some video clips. I thought we could look at some of them, if that's okay with you guys. Oh, and this is something that you posted, Justin. This is something the CDC put out. An infographic, my job puts me at high risk for COVID-19 exposure. I got vaccinated because it's better to be protected than to be out sick. And I think you suggested that you're not a CDC communications expert, but you thought maybe this messaging was a little unwise. What's your hot take on this? Yeah, so I, I mean, it just, it, to me, it just gets to the very darkness of the moment we're in, where workers uh, in 2020 actually had paid sick days for the most part under, under a temporary uh, act that was passed, it expired. Um, unemployment, unemployment. Uh, Additional unemployment assistance also expired, was not renewed. There was no attempt to renew it after September. So you, you have you have workers um, who are being told that they need to get vaccinated so they don't 
so, so they, they're able to eat, so they don't starve. Uh, it's just pretty dark. I'm all, I'm all for workers getting vaccinated. I'm all for the attempted OSHA rule to, to vaccinate all workers. But this, this is not it. This just gets to the kind of dystopian uh, place that, that uh, the Biden administration and the whole, the whole political system in the U.S., sure. but especially the Biden administration has put us in. Right. Because it takes for granted that your work is putting you at high risk for COVID. Yeah. And you shouldn't. Uh, exactly. They're, the government isn't protecting workers right. and employers aren't protecting workers. And um, this was also created prior to Omicron, I think. It was, I think they first started running the ad uh, early December uh, when there wasn't much known about Omicron. Um, because the vaccines, while still protecting reasonably well against hospitalization and death, aren't protecting very well against infection. So you do want people to be missing work, even if you're vaccinated, precisely to avoid uh, infecting others. Right. Missing work without losing their jobs. Exactly. Right. So, and it's funny because the CDC had another, I guess maybe it's like the same person is doing their outreach, but they had another infographic where it was like, it's so expensive to go to the hospital. And it showed how much money you have to spend so get vaccinated, which, again, people should get vaccinated, but also it's a problem that it's so expensive if you have to go to the hospital. So they're just like laying it bare. They're unintentional, big critics of capitalism. They don't even realize yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And just to say, like, just having worked for a, a local health department, um, you know, I think we just have to be aware there are very many very bright people at the CDC. I, I would have to assume that they are under significant pressure um, to, by business interests and by um, federal leadership to sort of adopt this type of guidance. And then just in terms of the ads, I mean, often health departments or CDC, they have like other um, they've, you know, ad companies helping to develop the invent some of these ads, yeah. but clearly um, getting community <laughs> input and public input on the appropriateness of the ads is incredibly important. And that's usually actually something that doesn't happen for health departments and, and government agencies. Right. So I wanted to show some clips. Brad, can we play the Fauci on Chris Hayes clip, please? Today, the U.S. set a new record high for COVID cases with a seven-day average of new daily cases at over 250,000, topping the old mark set last January before vaccines were widely available, but of course before Omicron. This comes a day after the CDC updated its guidance recommending shorter isolation and quarantine time periods. Yesterday, when that news crossed, going down from 10 to 5 days for people who are asymptomatic, I saw an incredibly strong reaction both online, commentators, people I knew, people in public health. It was very polarized. Some people reacting, yes, finally, it's done. They haven't done this earlier. Other people said, no, this is catastrophic. So the decision has inspired strong feelings and also a little bit of confusion on what the actual guidance is. Joining me now is Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden. Dr. Fauci, let's just start with what the actual guidance is. Um, My understanding is it's five days of isolation if you're asymptomatic. But what does that mean? Like, what if I'm symptomatic for two days and asymptomatic for three? Like, how do I what is that? How does that cash out in real life? Well, let's start with the completely asymptomatic uh, first, Chris, because that we want to okay. make sure that fundamental issue gets understood. If I'm infected and without symptoms, normally I would have to be isolated for 10 days. Right now, because of the concern that there are so many people now and likely in the next few weeks 
who will be infected by this wave of infections that we're getting with Omicron, many of whom will be without symptoms or only mildly symptomatic, that that might have a negative impact on our ability to maintain the structure of society, of all the essential workers that you would need if you keep them all out for a period of 10 days. So the, the, the consideration and the decision on the part of the CDC was, let's look and see if we could cut that in half to can five we, can days. We pause? Yes, yes. So there's something misleading going on, which is he's talking about essential workers and preserving the function of society. Of all the essential workers that you would need if you keep them all out for a period of 10 days. That's something that that, that was language that we heard in March and April of, of 2020 when there were some some paid shutdowns, when people got pandemic unemployment assistance to go home and, and keep themselves safe. But we have these essential workers stay, a minority of workers stay at their jobs. This uh, this rule, this this guidance rather, does not only apply to essential workers. It's meant to apply to the people at the mall, at the restaurants, uh, at, at businesses that that could either be restricted or or closed in in a different world or or in other countries like like in Canada, which is which is temporarily closing some businesses. So you're saying that he's kind of making it seem like he's talking about essential workers, but this is something for all workers. Exactly. And he's using language to make it. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm so frustrated by this is because it gives, I think, so much. There's so much skepticism already and vaccine hesitancy. And this, to me, just gives so much ammo to people who are either confused or have lost faith or trust. And it's like you shouldn't be undermining yourselves like this. Yeah. I mean, I, ha- I just have to say, just having worked for a health department, again, yeah. it's not the CDC, but I suspect they are just having to follow what the party line is and what they're being told. I right. mean, these are incredibly bright folks. I mean, I do have to say, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Walensky, like they're not public health people, like they're medical people. Right. So I think we actually don't have public health leadership, really, uh. um, as part of this um, White House response, which is like a whole nother um, but related issue. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the person you're not seeing in all of this is the person with the most power over pandemic response, Jeff Zients. Right. Right. He, has, he is as little pub, of a public health person as one can be. He he has a background in uh, private equity, being capital. Um, he he's the one who's really running the show with COVID response policy. And we're seeing people like Fauci and Walensky having to to sell policies mm-hmm. not made by them. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Interesting. Let's keep going. The, the consideration and the decision on the part of the CDC was, let's look and see if we could cut that in half to five days. So what happens is that you're isolated for five days. And then if you're still asymptomatic, at the end of that five days, you can go out and do your job and re-enter society, hopefully getting functions of society normal, but you have to wear a mask. That's the fundamental matrix okay. of the issue. This is That was a very honest and clarifying answer because you are talking about a policy judgment in a context of trade-offs between different consequences. Okay. So stopping the spread of a highly communicable infectious disease is one thing that we want to do. Uh, allowing, as you said, society to function. Obviously, like you don't want everyone at the local local water treatment facility to be out in quarantine for 10 days with none of the skilled technicians running it, for one example, okay? Correct. But 
And I, I get that, and I think it's a very forthright explanation, but I guess the question is like, is there any science backing up the idea that after five days of asymptomatic isolation that you're not still shedding virus and contagions? Yeah, yeah. There, it, nothing is going to be 100%, and this is one of those situations when you're dealing with a very difficult situation, Chris, that we often say you don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. The fact is that we know that when you are infected early on in infection for the first several days, you have more of a likelihood to have a high level of virus and to be capable of spreading it. As you get into the second half of that 10-day period, we know that the virus in general, not for every single 100% of the people, but for most of the time, for most of the people, that level of virus diminishes to the point where the CDC feels, and I don't disagree with them at all, that wearing a mask is ample protection during that second half of a 10-day period. When you balance that... Yeah. I just wanted to say, like, they're just, you know, a, a, a lot of, like, concerning issues with, with what he's saying. I mean, I think, you know, just in terms of wearing a mask, like many people, you know, the guidance from the CDC around like wealth, I think well-fitted masks, I think is the terminology they use. Um, I think it's either for like a cloth mask or maybe a surgical mask. We're not talking about like N95 masks. And we know that many Americans don't have access to these higher um, grade masks so that they can um, protect themselves. And then I just wanted to add also that, you know, we know some of these, um, like a Delta, the Delta Airlines CEO, you know, sort of reached out and was, you know, with the um, with Dr. Carlos Del Rio and I guess their medical um, director um, to ask about the shortening of the isolation period. But they had also asked around um, about a testing requirement where CDC completely like dispensed with any testing requirement. I think we're all clear as to why because of the lack of availability of tests. But the fact that they're like not honest about why there's no testing requirement, I think is like further erodes like any existing trust that was previous was present previous to Monday. Yeah, just the fact that they're just not being honest. And I, I think, you know, all these people are in very challenging positions, but this is just not helpful at all. It's just very frustrating to watch. And, um, you know, I think this was yesterday, today, there's there's been uh, many more appearances by Rochelle Walensky and by the deputy oh, director of CDC. Try, yeah. trying to explain the science behind yeah. the decision and there there really isn't isn't much. Yeah. So I guess the question is is Chris Hayes when he mentions the water purifier example, right? He's like, well, you obviously need some people back to work. So how do we balance needing for instance, as you pointed out though this isn't just about essential workers, right? That's part of the issue, but how how should we be balancing the needs, you know, of patients? with the needs of healthcare workers more generally? Or is that kind of a different discussion since what we're talking about isn't essential in healthcare workers? Yeah, I mean, I think um, like if you're talking about how, how do we do a better response, um, I think right now we're at such a le high level of spread that in so many places, hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Um, and we've seen, in, I've been tracking the data in New York City in the last week, hospitalizations have more than doubled. Um, there's still plenty of capacity so far, but what if it keeps doubling? We really don't know where where it's going to end. And in other places in the country are really have very little hospital capacity and are still only dealing with Delta. Omicron hasn't, hasn't even hit. Um, 
So I think what you want to do ideally is make the resources available to keep people safe temporarily to, we used to call it flatten the curve, make sure the healthcare system doesn't get overrun. Um, and then the remaining workers who have to have to go in person, I would like to see them get hazard pay. And I would like to see them get a very high level of occupational protections, ventilation, N95 masks, et cetera. But how are we going to pay for it? As they always ask about everything, but the Pentagon. I mean, there's funding that was sent to to the states. I mean, so the states, so many states do have, um, you know, resources to to do a lot of this. Um, I just think that um, there need to be, like, the Biden administration needs to use whatever levers um, of of control that it has, and it really hasn't sort of maximized those. So even things like creating. Um, you know, guidance for states about, um, you know, mass policies. So what are the, you know, what are the levels of community transmission at which we want to make sure that we have people mass in indoor um, public places? Like there's just very little guidance that has been developed at the federal level um, for states um, and localities. And we know that a lot of like state policy can be influenced by, uh, by federal guidance. And that's really not happening. Like the CDC has really, really stepped back. And part of you know, Biden's initial plan was really about working with state state governors, working with local jurisdictions to get them to adopt a number of these policies. And it seems like the White House has just really given up. There have been these memes going around, like how it started, how, you know, how it's going. How it's, thank you. I seem so out of touch. How it started, how it's going. And it shows Trump saying something comparable to what Biden is saying now. And then people get defensive. You know, how could you compare the two? But the point is, one of them is president right now. So, so some people who are saying, but Trump, that's not really, that's not enough. You can't just say that. You can't just do the but Trump thing because right. Trump isn't president. And the other thing is like, of course, we should be pushing Biden. Biden's press secretary joked about how ridiculous it was to give out free tests. And then lo and behold, that became a policy. So, you know, to my brothers and sisters out there who are feeling protective of Biden, you're doing him a favor to all three of you watching the show tonight. But we also have some Walensky that we can listen to. We have more where that came from. From what you're saying, it sounds like this decision had just as much to do with business as it did with the science. Well, so it really had a lot to do with what um, we thought people would be able to tolerate. We have seen relatively low rates of isolation um, for all of this pandemic. Some science has demonstrated less than a third of people are isolating when they need to. And so we really want to make sure that we had guidance in this moment where we were going to have a lot of disease that could be adhered to, that people were willing to adhere to, and that spoke um, specifically to when people were maximally infectious. So it really... Um, spoke to both behaviors as well as what people were able to do. She's she's talking about people. Um, It's not really about people. Like, yes, there are individuals in their own capacity who go to the CDC website after they're infected or exposed to say, okay, what do I do now? Um, But that's that's really not what this is about. This is about policy. And it's largely about um, businesses uh, and their quarantine and isolation policies that they adopt voluntarily. And in some states, it does have force of law. Uh, in some states, there are protections for workers who are quarantining and isolating. So she's she's putting it on the individual when it's yeah. really, really about business. Right. And, and, and just to add to Justin's point, like that's just been their the CDC's approach in general. Like this has been a very individual sort of level um, 
response in terms of people like get out, get vaccinated and blame people for being unvaccinated for the situation we're in, as opposed to the reason we're here is because we haven't had the appropriate policies in place. Right. There's a lot of shaming that's going on. Mm-hmm. And now for something completely different or a little different. Michelle Walensky is the director of the Center yeah, for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Walensky, good morning. Thanks for joining us. We want to start, if we can, with the CDC's recent decision to cut that isolation period in half. Given that you and other public officials have acknowledged that it wasn't exclusively science, but also those possible staffing shortages that played a role in this decision, should Americans feel safe? Good morning, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. So we followed numerous areas of science in making this important decision. One, of course, was how the virus behaves. How much virus do you still have that you could potentially transmit after five days? And we generally know that most of your transmission potential happens in those one to two days before you have symptoms and those two to three days after. So by the time five days of isolation has occurred, you probably have about 85 to 90 percent of all of your transmission potential behind you while you've been in isolation. Isolation. Importantly, also to that decision was where we are in the epidemiology of this disease, skyrocketing case numbers, as you have noted, we anticipate they could get even higher. And many people are asymptomatic or only mildly symptomatic, especially those who have been vaccinated or boosted. And so they may very well not be able to or willing to comply with 10 days worth of isolation. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of more of the same talking about individuals rather right. than businesses and that like we've we've gone through the mask stuff um and and then yeah she's she's throwing out some numbers uh percents when people are infectious it's not exactly clear what she means by that and according to the new york times she's talking about some internal modeling they did based on the delta variant not the Omicron variant. Right. And she seems to, th- I mean, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but she throws around a lot of like probably and generally. Right. Well, I think there's like a lot of uncertainty and I think like it's helpful, you know, as a public health person or scientist to say, you know, when there is uncertainty. Um, but we do know there's a lot of variability in terms of like duration of time during right. which people are infectious. And so um, does she want to be around like a colleague who's in those last five days, like wearing a mask? Like, would she feel comfortable? This is like the reality. I think most people would probably say they wouldn't want to be around someone who is potentially, you know, infectious, even if they're wearing a mask. Someone right. Uh, let's see. Bus God writes, Dem leadership is asymptomatic progressive. I don't <laughs> even know if they would diagnose themselves as progressive, but they certainly are yeah. not showing symptoms. Okay. Here. And now we have a During one of the busiest travel seasons of the year, joining me now is the international president of the Association of the Flight Attendants Union, Sarah Nelson. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And first, I just want to get your reaction to this new guidance. Well, look, this came in the middle of the busy holiday season at the behest of Delta Airlines when they started to see that they were going to have staffing troubles. Other airlines negotiated incentive pay to try to get through the holiday period. Delta did not do that and doesn't have unions. And so CDC responded with a cut in half of the isolation time uh, when someone is infected with no testing before going back out into public, but with two key points that you are asymptomatic and that you continue to wear a mask. It's really important that we lift this up and CDC should also be recommending if they're going to uh, fall in line with what the airlines want, that uh, the airlines also say how they are going to implement this to make sure that it is only for people who are asymptomatic, who are coming back to work, so that people are not forced to come back to work when they're still sick, and how they are going to implement ensuring that masks are worn at all times, including in the flight deck. 
Look, it was totally transparent here. This was asked for as the staffing issues were being put in place. Delta's statement after the, this policy was put into place had not an ounce of public safety in, in it, but it was all about the staffing issues. And, and that is the quick response from CDC in the middle of this holiday season to try to address that rather than be focused on public health policies. And I want to make it very clear. The CDC should be loud and clear about implementation here because no worker should be forced to come to work uh, when they are still sick. And that is, I believe, what we are going to see here. We're very concerned about that. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add, I, I think I saw like a tweet on <laughs> Twitter today or yesterday, a viral tweet where I guess someone was diagnosed with COVID-19 and told their boss and boss was like, oh, don't worry if it's mild, just come in. So I think, you know, we're, this is probably going to be, you know, happening, you know, throughout throughout the country. And obviously it's incredibly concerning and will obviously potentially worsen the current situation we're in. So none, none of it really makes um, much sense. The Biden administration, I think, is worth noting, actually went much further than the airlines asked of them. Right. Um, the airlines were saying, if you're vaccinated and have a test right. and are asymptomatic, you can come back. They, they're not, um, the Biden administration is not put in any of those in, in the guidance. Uh, it's a, they're saying any job, doesn't matter vaccination status, doesn't matter if you test positive or don't test at all. Uh, if your symptoms are resolving, uh, whatever that means. it's. It, it seems like what's happened here is the Biden administration saw thousands of flights canceled over the, the holiday season. Um, and in New York City, where Omicron seems to have a little head start, they're seeing many businesses close down and they're they're worried about their economic goals. They're worried about businesses shutting down. They're worried about uh, inflation. That's that sort of thing. So they're, they're pushing workers uh, to to put their lives on the line for their their understanding of economic progress. What about to play devil's advocate? What about people say, well, we need economies to function. We need the economy to function for, for the little people, not just corporation, not mm -hmm. just corporate America, but people can't afford inflation. You, you hear all these arguments. So what's mm -hmm. your response to that? Well, just to say, I think when we look at like countries across the world that have like prioritized like the health of, of their citizens, like those are the ones that have then been able to really maintain relatively strong economies. And those that have not prioritized um, the health of their citizens then have had really struggling economies. So the reality is that, you know, if we were having unabated spread of, um, of, of this virus, um, people are not going to be able to show up like Omicron is going to shut things down. So instead right. of having Omicron shut things down, let's do this in a way that like is sensible um, and really prioritizes the health and well-being of Americans and American workers. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd put it this way. Um, there's a major new risk in society, um, COVID, and someone has to pay for it. Either government and business can pay for it or workers can pay for it with their lives. Mm -hmm. um, I did research covering the first year of the pandemic and I found that if working age people of color um, who had high school degrees or less, so pe people of color who are working class, if they died at the same rate of college educated white people, 90% fewer of them would have died. So we really have both a, a classed and racialized pandemic that is having extremely unequal impacts depending on who you are and the kind of work you do and the kind of housing you're able to live in. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because obviously both of you focus on this issue and health justice is about centering Mm anti-racism and centering equity. And Justin, you also wrote a piece about the way that people discuss socializing as as risky behavior, but not work as risky behavior. And you you mentioned some really interesting statistics that have to do with how racialized it is. So this was a piece I wrote in Jacobin in, in the first year of the pandemic, largely before vaccination. And I was finding in state after state, Democrat and Republican governors were blaming the spread of COVID on small social gatherings in people's homes, at parties, whatever. And they were ignoring or even denying the role of uh of occupational exposure. And one of the things that is not explained by this sort of social gathering explanation is why there's such huge racial inequalities. Um, for, For Latino workers, for instance, their rate of excess death in the first year was among the highest of, of any group. And normally, uh, Latinos have lower mortality rates overall than white people. And that really points to the kinds of, of high-risk jobs they're doing. And that, that continues. Even in, uh, I looked at between August and December in this so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated period, where where a lot of commentators were blaming Republican, white, old right-wingers who refused to get vaccinated for the whole pandemic. During that time period, um, the death rate was 30% higher for Black and Latino people um, and double uh, that of white people for, for Native Americans and about four times higher that of white people for Pacific Islanders in the U.S., yeah, and no, just to, just to yeah. piggyback, I, I, my, um, so I just talk a lot about like occupational like segregation and how a number of like policies from even decades ago have really, and existing policies have worked to really concentrate um, Black and Latino workers, obviously, in um, in occupations that put them at increased risk, that also have like limited benefits, so they are in, unable to really access healthcare when they need it. And so it's like the perfect storm, I think, to mm-hmm. really speak to what, um, what Justin was talking about. Yeah. And speaking of responsibility and blaming the individual, I just have to show this clip from it's Anderson Cooper with Bill Gates. Do you think the federal government or state governments or the very least federal government should mandate if you want to get on an airplane, you have to be vaccinated. If you want to get uh, Social Security, you need to be vaccinated. If you want to get uh, whatever whatever benefits uh, they give you need to be vaccinated for. Is that something that the U.S. can and should do? So that was weird. I was not expecting that. He basically asks, I mean, I've heard people discuss vaccines for flights. Right. (laughs) But not for Social Security, except for some like total blue check Twitter Mm -hmm. people who, you know, trying to be diplomatic. But certain types of people I've heard make that argument, which I've always found pretty scary and uh, counterproductive. And full transparency, Gates said, well, certainly if you take a case like nursing homes where, you know, we are seeing transmission primarily through unvaccinated people there, you can make a very compelling case. If once you get far beyond that, the question is, will it work to get people to be more to seek out the vaccine, you know, And so you have to step back and think through this whole system. But, you know, I would hope that we get to 80 percent. I would hope we can get to 90 percent. So luckily, he does not jump on that bandwagon that I guess Anderson Cooper is on. But perhaps 
nudging or something. I don't know what the, the yeah. right metaphor would be. About yeah, that was odd. <laughs> yeah, it's that, was odd. Like, that was a bit of a jump. But I, I think we don't obviously don't want to be punitive to folks. I think we want to like incentivize folks right. getting vaccinated and figure out what resonates with folks and what would get them interested. Um, but I think it also just speaks to like this over emphasis and focus on this vaccine only and very vaccine centric approach that um, the federal response has had, as opposed to like thinking about like, what are, you know, the vaccine in addition to the many other um, measures that can be taken to really keep everybody safe. So, yeah, I mean, I actually heard Chuck Todd kind of suggest that too. So I guess I shouldn't be that surprised, but I think he 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 floated like un- taking away unemployment benefits which is so great cuz you're literally saying that these people are risky cuz they're not vaccinated right. we're going to take away their unemployment benefits right. guess what they're going to do and, and approaches like that often cause people to like dig in more like and not trust more so oh that i think it's going to be very unproductive yeah i mean it's it's like it's terrible yeah and I just think that making that video with Bill Gates asking those questions, his reaction is just like very poor image consciousness. <laughs> he he has PR people who should have yeah. prevented that interview from even happening. That's that video that interview itself fuels vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, seriously. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I think people are so people are so used to being in their own bubbles. They have no idea how someone would take this video who doesn't already agree with them. Mm-hmm. But again, as you as you pointed out, it is, of course, going to cause people to dig in that much more. I mean, especially if you're using like illogical, vindictive things. It's not even there's like no. How does that work out? That doesn't work out at all. I mean, I've heard people make the argument that this is not good either, but there's at least the logic. And I'm not advocating for this. People are like, oh, don't. They shouldn't be able to take up hospital beds if they're not vaccinated, which I think is a bad argument, but that has a pretense of logic to it. This just doesn't even make any sense. But speaking of like the micro individual versus the macro societal, uh, you, Dr. Blackstock, really talk about this when you address vaccine apartheid. And I was wondering if you could kind of just, I know it's, it's different from this, but it's also related in terms of there's this sense that the Biden administration is doing all it can do. And you, in an address, you basically shed light on how that's not true, that there's a lot more that can be done. Yeah. So we're probably in this current situation, potentially, I mean, in terms of Omicron, um, because, you know, there are large swaths of the world that don't have access um, to, you know, effective COVID-19 vaccines. Um, And so, you know, but the Biden administration obviously has been appealed to um, by many activists and advocates and public health experts to really use um, whatever influence and whatever political means and diplomatic means can be used to um, really, well, for one thing, is get the World Health Organization, um, get uh, the EU and Switzerland and some other countries to sign on to what's called the TRIPS waiver, which would allow um, some of these intellectual property rights to be waived so that some of the um, sort of know-how and recipes for vaccine could be shared with manufacturers um, or vaccine makers in the global South and other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, he signed up and back in May, he said he was like behind this and was, it was great, but really everything is really stalled and we haven't really seen um, much progress. I think this issue of global vaccine equity came back up when we heard about Omicron being detected. I mean, we don't know if that's where it emerged, but first detected in um, South Africa and potentially Botswana detected, you know, just to make it clear. Um, and then we saw those um, really sort of knee jerk travel bans happening. 
Um, but basically, just speaking to the point is just that the Biden administration clearly needs to do a lot more in terms of ensuring that the global south gets access to vaccines and donations are not enough. Um, they're, they're very like inconsistent. Like if people are getting like a trickle here and then a whole bunch there, they're not able to really develop um, sort of the infrastructure and processes needed to get vaccines to folks. So Biden still needs to like step up and, and do what and do what he needs to do. And in, in particular around the Moderna vaccine, where there's a the potential there um, that there are um, National Institute of Health researchers who were thought to be, you know, behind the, the creation of the vaccine. And so if that is the case, the U.S. can actually share the recipe and know-how and technology with um, vaccine makers in other countries. And that's been stalled and not happening. So we're, we don't realize how interconnected we are. And obviously viruses know no boundaries. And right. so, you know, as long as there are people in parts of the world who are not vaccinated, then we're going to deal with these situations again, again, and again. Right. And so these people like are smart. They know this. So why aren't they doing everything they can? Because because um, these vaccine makers, you know, the Pfizer's, uh, Moderna, um, you know, they have a, a great deal of influence um, on politicians, on the president. Um, and they're, you know, the president's unwilling to take the stand that he needs to. Which, again, is really scary. And just it just contributes to this, again, this credibility erosion. And I understand part of it. But I just disagree with what should be done about it. You know, my I, for me, that doesn't mean so don't get vaccinated. But it's a hard. It's very hard to say, like, well, listen to them. They they want to save lives unless it conflicts with big right. pharma. Uh, they want to save lives unless it conflicts with the bottom line of certain corporations. Like how how can we it makes our job so much harder. Your guys' jobs as people in this medical field. I mean, what do I do? I just rant. But it does really undermine the uh, credibility of these institutions. And it's it's just infuriating. And the truth is, mm -hmm. like, they are willing to sacrifice lives for money. Yes. yes. I know I'm and, and we went too. Like, that's what we do on Twitter. Yeah. So that's all yeah, good. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have to follow both of them on Twitter. You know, I was thinking about this because, of course, Des Desmond Tutu just passed. And can you explain why it's it's being framed by some as an apartheid issue? Right. So I just think this idea of, um, you know, in inequity of certain countries having um, access to certain resources um, and opportunities to sort of live, you know, a vaccine, you know, a virus free life versus other countries where that's not the reality and where they don't have the resources um, to do so. And I think, um, you know, just given especially the for profit aspect to a lot of this as well, um, you know, these vaccine makers know that they're not going to be able to make a lot of money or, or much of a profit by selling to many of these countries. And so they're focused on like the, the European countries, United States, potentially Asian countries, um, and really don't see many like Sub-Saharan African countries, for instance, um, as um, potential um, customers. So um, yeah, so just, just in terms of this um, sort of chasm or this, this dichotomy in terms of what people have access to. Right. So I was talking about this with someone the other day and she said she kind of pushed back on my vilification of the Biden administration for not doing more about vaccine apartheid and said that, well, there's also a lot of vaccine hesitancy. So wouldn't it just not be used? So people have looked at this. This has been there's like a really good, um, I think, op-ed written about this. So 
vaccine hesitancy, yes, that exists, but that is not what is driving this 100%. Um, a lot of this has to do with just lack of access to vaccines and also the support to develop like an infrastructure for also providing the vaccine. And so a lot of people are attributing it to vaccine hesitancy, but there are many, there are like, you know, over a billion people living in <laughs> the African continent. Um, and so vaccine hesitancy also varies from country to country, from city to city. Um, but the, but many, the vast majority of people, if they had access to a vaccine, said that they would, when surveyed in different countries, said that they right. would be open to getting a vaccine and they would want a vaccine. So I think that's like an easy um, excuse um, when we know that, you know, at least provide people the vaccine and let them have the the option of whether they want to take it or not. Yeah. Like you were saying, gives them it's harder to, you can't really like build an infrastructure or build incentives around something that is so scarce. Right, exactly. And then also just to say that COVAX, that whole initiative where like all these wealthy countries were supposed to be donating vaccines, that's also very well behind. Like many of the countries that promised a certain amount of vaccines have not fulfilled their promises. So that initiative has not been particularly successful. Yeah. And so what advice do you have just for people watching? Like, what do you recommend that people can do? How long should they isolate for? And then we can talk about making the capitalists actually pay for it. But just in terms of like right now, before the revolution, what should people be doing? Um, yeah. I, so I, I think about this in two ways. One way is that there's, uh, as the Biden administration was pushing uh, before recently, this line, we have the tools. Uh, not not everyone has the tools. Yeah. But <laughs> if, if you have the tools... Of tools being uh, control over who you live with and their activities and control over your working environment and money to buy things. Um, you should get vaccinated. You should get boosted if you haven't been. Um, you should be wearing high quality masks better than a surgical or, or fabric mask, but N95 or similar. <clears throat> um, if you get exposed or isolated, I would follow the, the older 10 day guidance um, and also potentially consider using rapid at-home tests uh, and testing negative be before you leave isolation. Uh, but again, not not everyone has that luxury. Yeah, I, I agree with um, with Justin. And just in terms of what B the Biden administration needs to do, they need to be much much bolder in in what they're doing. Um, you know, the 500 million uh, rapid tests that are promised for like January, like we're in the middle of the surge now. That needs to be like billions of, of rapid tests. They should be sending out mass and 95 mass, or at least supporting states and be able to send these out. Connecticut actually is doing this. Um, you know, to, to all Americans, um, many of much of the plan that they have is like around building hospital capacity, but that's like too late. We actually need to do things that slow um, transmission, you know, creating um, data-driven policy guidance around mass policies. Like there's, you know, standards around ventilation and air, air filtration. There's like a lot that they, um, you know, even the, the, the domestic air travel, um, you know, getting vaccination requirements for that. There are a lot of things that they could be doing that they're not doing. Um, and so, yeah, I would like to see that happen. Yeah. It just, it seems like they planned for the best case scenario, which was, uh, you know, they came into office during a major wave and they figured it would kind of go down to ignorable levels. And that didn't happen with Delta and then uh, Omicron. And the, the decisions they've made have just made it even difficult for them to take another path. So we're going full speed ahead into a wave 
of infection. Um, and I, I would just say to, to them, among other things, first fire Jeff Zions and put in charge someone who knows what they're doing and can manage a pandemic right. uh, with fewer people dying. And also a, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Plan for this getting worse. Plan for it staying another year or two or more. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but you need the policy infrastructure to be able to deal with it if it does. Yeah, and they should put in um, someone leading the response who has a public health as well as health equity <laughs> background. That would be really awesome to have that as opposed to someone with a finance background. Right. That's absurd. That's kind of obscene. I didn't even realize that. I don't know if I forgot it. It's like repressed memory or I never knew it. But Bain, are you kidding me? You can't make yeah. that up. And here's another question from the audience. It's a kind of large one. So tackle it in a limited extent. Ask guests to discuss poor med slash public health communication strategies used, how vaccine hesitancy and medical distrust is historical and political. Really easy ones. That's like a big topic. Yeah. Anything that you want to say about this? Justin, I know in your piece at Jacobin, you write about historical. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would think about this in, in uh, a few different ways. Um, but the from from the beginning in the U.S., uh, a, a lot of the both media and Biden administration were claiming that people who weren't vaccinated didn't want to be and were ideologically opposed. And what that framing does is take away the responsibility of government and put it all on the people. Yeah. It's true that a lot of people don't want to be vaccinated. And that's that's a real problem that needs needs to we, we have to figure out ways of of dealing with that. But um, since even since that line back in in May of pandemic of the unvaccinated, tens of millions of people have been newly vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And you can think about Republicans who don't want to get vaccinated because they whatever, whatever reasons they give. Um, But I also think about people who are in prisons and jails and don't trust the medical system there. I think about the workers in uh, you know, meatpacking plants that have really high rates of infection, where in some cases, extreme cases, we had managers of those plants placing bets on how many would be infected, not trusting worksite vaccination. That's completely understandable because it's happening in the context of these really unequal power relations. Um, children have very low vaccination rates. Children under five aren't vaccinated. Um, and I'm also seeing a pattern where people in their 80s and late 70s have lower vaccination rates than people in their 60s and early 70s. And to me, that's just about autonomy and who can make decisions about their health care versus who needs to rely on others. So we really still need a lot more outreach and, and a lot more uh, you know, working with institutions, with community groups, et cetera, to get the vaccine out. Yeah. 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 And just just to add, like a lot of the focus, because I'm, I'm in particular, I've done a lot of I'm actually a, have a whole career as like a researcher. And so did a lot of work around mistrust in, in the context of HIV. Right. But just to say that, um, you know, so much of the focus was on like the mistrust of individuals and of communities, as opposed to like, what do institutions need to do to build trust? Like, it should be like flipped around, you know, right. institutional trustworthiness, like because so much so many different communities have been mistreated neglected um, and have, you know, very valid um, and justifiable reasons like to be concerned about um, this vaccine that was developed, vaccines that were developed, you know, rather quickly. Um, And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot more, you know, like for instance, with the CDC, in terms of the messaging that happens, how do we tailor messaging messaging to like rural white 
um, you know, um, folks who may have mistrust for different reasons than maybe Black and Latino people in New York City. And we're not really seeing any of that happening. And the narrative is all about it being a bunch of people who are anti-vaxxers because they don't have to look at the ways that people have to face different barriers. Like you can't find childcare necessarily to go get vaccinated, right? Right. And, and just an overall, like thinking about, for instance, we don't even have health care for all in this country. Like, so people have been neglected, mistreated, not cared for. And then you're now saying, oh, I have this vaccine and I need you to take it. Like it, it's inconsistent. Right. It doesn't align. It doesn't make sense with right. people's experiences. Right. And they're also wary of um, hidden hidden fees or right. hidden bills, mm-hmm. right, which happens a yeah. lot in healthcare. And honestly, and I I see patients um, at one of our city hospitals and, you know, I had two patients come in the other day who have not been vaccinated. No one ever talked to them about vaccination. They're, whether they have in common, they're both homeless. One has serious mental illness. Like there are lots of folks that like society has discarded and no one's making many efforts to protect them. So it's just, it's a, a complicated and right. heterogeneous picture. Yeah. And also given that, that those are things that you can actually, doesn't require reconversion, right? I mean, if you have people who are really ideologically anti-vaccine, like that's the sexy population to vilify. In the meantime, you're ignoring all these people who need access, need resources, who you can actually empower to get vaccinated, who would if they could. Exactly. Well, I know, Dr. Blackstock, you have to leave. Um, no, thank you so much for joining. I don't know what your schedule so, so I'll just do a, Justin, if you have a few more minutes, would love to keep going. But if you have to go. Sure. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm okay to keep going a little bit. Okay, cool. awesome. Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for joining. Everyone follow her on Twitter and check out her amazing organization, Health Justice. And thank you so much for all that you do. And maybe one day you can come on with your twin sister, who's also a doctor. (laughs) We'd be happy to. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Thanks, Bradley. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.